Well, my name's Chris, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're continuing on in our series through Romans. We said in three words that Romans could be summarized as follows, Christ in, good job, that was a much quicker answer this week, great. We said that, the, that Romans is about what the gospel does for and in, good job. We said that chapters 1 through 4 tell us that the gospel declares God's righteousness and our sinfulness, right? Not our us. Someone said our us. The gospel declares our righteousness and our sinfulness. Uh, at least I thought that's what I heard. So chapters 1 through 4 declare us guilty before God. Then 5 through 8 that the gospel creates a new humanity and a new family. Adam means human, and through the first Adam... Uh, uh, humanity 1.0 came sin. And then through humanity 2.0, the, the one who brought about a new, uh, a, a new life was Jesus, the new Adam. So we have a new family and a new humanity through Christ. Chapters 9 through 11 that will start on tonight is the third section of Romans that communicates how the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. In light of this new covenant in Christ, how does the old covenant relate to the new? And finally, the last and fourth section assure us that the gospel alone can unify the church. The gospel alone. Paul's been building from chapter 1 through 8, making the argument that we are justified by Christ and his finished work on the cross, his resurrection and his ascension, not through adherence to the law. Paul was led by the Spirit to do this because these Jewish Christians were returning from a five-year exile enforced upon them by the Roman government, and they were coming home to see that the church was now largely Gentile, and they were wondering, how are these Gentile Christians not committing themselves to Sabbath, ritual, and circumcision laws from the Torah? How can they really be saved or in Christ if they're not adhering to these laws? And then we continued on last week in Romans 8, where we saw the climax of the whole book in this section where we find our, the new humanity and new family in Christ. The climax of that whole section in the whole book and, and the chapter, Romans 8, we said was 38 through 39, where it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the whole book has been building to make this point, and that is nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Romans 9 speaks then directly to the nation of Israel, the Jews, and to all believers about the implications of being chosen by or in Christ. What are the implications? So I want you now to go ahead and just read chapter 9 on your own. Just skim through it because we're going to go through just the first six verses tonight. But I want us to understand the larger context. So grab a Bible or look on your phone and read Romans chapter 9. This will not be on the screen. The whole chapter will not be on the screen.
okay, when you're done, look at me, but keep your eyes closed. No, I'm just kidding. I want to see a bunch of closed eyes looking up at me. Uh, no, go ahead and finish up. Again, it's okay if you skim. As you can see, this is a difficult passage and likely the most argued chapter in the entire Bible regarding how a believer should interpret judgment and election from God. Election being a word that describes how God saves or elects individuals unto salvation. Next week, we'll get into the sum of the differences. There are really two main camps or thoughts on how to interpret this chapter uh, and both of them are orthodox, and both have a very high view of Scripture and defend their arguments very well from Scripture. So it can, there, there is a, a great tension between these two schools of thought. And we'll see next week that even Kimball and I have uh, different perspectives on this chapter. Neither one, is, neither one of us is married to our particular convictions on chapter 9, we have different views, but we're not staunchly committed to our views. We have humility for the other side's arguments. And we're able to rejoice in the fact that Awaken has two pastors who have slightly different perspectives on this chapter. Because we'll see that really matters. I have one point for us tonight and one point only. I'm not getting into the nitty-gritty of what those perspectives are. We'll get into that next week. But there's a heart we have to have as we read Romans 9. And you know what it is? There are people who are lost without Christ, and we should be burdened beyond description for them. That's it. You could leave right now and have your money's worth. That is the point of chapter 9, not to argue over uh, election and what's involved in that. And we'll see as we get into the first six verses why that is the focus of Romans 9. It's important to have convictions, but what's more important is to be burdened by the fact that there are people who are lost and without Christ. So let's read more carefully now. Romans 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. This is Paul talking to the church at Rome. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So starting off here, why does Paul feel the need to, commit, to, to convince these young Christians at Rome that he's telling the truth. Why does he do so in three different ways? Why do that? He says, I speak the truth. Then he gives three reasons or assurances that he is, in fact, speaking the truth. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. We said that's Romans in short, right? In Christ, Christ in us. They should believe him because he's a new creation in Christ. Second, he gives the reason, I speak the truth. I'm not lying. Lying is a part of the old nature, not the new nature. And Paul didn't need to hide behind a lie because that's what lying does. It hides, and he was confident in Christ. He's not lying. And then third, and maybe most importantly, he says, I speak the truth. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. 
So Paul is writing under the direction and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. His word here is canon. And it's not just that his conscience confirms it, because the conscience can confirm a terrorist activity, right? But it's that his conscience confirms it in and through the Holy Spirit. That what he is sharing here is truth and that he must share it even though it's a difficult truth. Paul is out adding some terrific firepower to his argument because he knows these, these Jewish believers are very young in their faith and they're going to struggle with what God has to say to them here through Paul. He's just shared the most beautiful truth known to all mankind throughout all of history. In Romans 8, 38 through 39, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so he knows he has been gushing and vividly describing the beautiful love of Christ and how nothing can separate us from it. And what he's about to say, it could look like to them, it's not, but it could look like it was a contradiction. And so his heart's broken for them because he knows that it's going to feel like a bomb's being dropped on him. You see, the reason for Paul's desire to convince his people that he's telling the truth and the reason for the argument contained in all of chapters 9 through 11, the reason for it is contained in one single verse. And out of this one single verse, for the rest of chapters 9 through 11, he gives reasons or rationale for why this uh, defending this truth. And that's this, Romans 9, 6. This is what Romans 9 through 11 is all about. He says, it's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And then he goes on for the rest of chapter 9 and then into 10 and through 11, defending that truth. It would appear to some of these Jews that God's word has failed. Because you see, they see their their relationship with God as one filled with promise directly to them as God's chosen people. And they mistakenly were convinced that it was their obedience to the law that made them right before God. And this could feel like to them it was a bait and switch. All these years, hundreds and hundreds of years, we thought redemptive history was headed in this direction. Where we would be saved through our obedience to the law. And now you're saying we're simply justified through Christ. What about all those promises? You're saying the Gentiles can get in just by receiving Christ? The promises were made to us. And these were near and dear to them. They had grown up on these promises. And he says to them that not all those who are descended from Israel are Israel. This is a punch in the gut. He's saying not all ethnic Jews are recipients of God's promise contained in the Torah. Put another way, not all ethnic Jews belong to God. Or or taking uh, the liberty of context even further, not all ethnic Jews are in Christ. Those are tough words for the Jewish community in Rome because of how they interpreted their faith. The the Jewish nation as a whole had become far from God. And although God says even in the Old Testament that what he desires is a humble and contrite heart, they were uh, adhering to the law outwardly, but their hearts were far from him. And we we said earlier on in the book of Romans that, that what Paul was admonishing through the Holy Spirit was circumcision of the heart. That outward circumcision was an outward invisible symbol of a deeper and way more profound reality of a circumcised and changed heart, a new life in Christ that comes through faith. 
And Paul affirms that the promises that had been given from God to Israel in Romans 9, 4 through 5. He says, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. So picture this as two bookends, okay? And verse 4 is one bookend, and Romans 5 is the other bookend. You're getting all of redemptive history in just two sentences. The first part... We see adoption to sonship, verse 4, adoption to sonship, theirs are the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. So that's talking about the law given at Mount Sinai, the Exodus, the patriarchs, and basically the whole Torah. And then the other book in, verse 5, is speaking of the Messiah. It says, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. So in other words, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is Jesus Christ who has always been and who will always be. In other words, he's saying there's nothing new here. The promises were made to you, so was the promised Messiah, and the Messiah has come. This is not a bait and switch. Paul is echoing what he said previously in Romans 3, verse 1 and 2. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So the Jews had been entrusted with the promises of God, but were not applying or obeying them. This disobedience then is not God's fault, but it was the fault of those who fell away, who failed to receive his word. Said another way, God's word has not fallen, even though most Israelites have. Even today, the majority of Jewish people, and this breaks my heart, don't receive the word of God because they don't believe the Messiah has come. You know, I just got back from a, a bar mitzvah, and there's many of those in Bexley that my kids go to. I think collectively they've been to about 30 now. And you go to these services, and they're heartbreaking. No one even knows what's being said. It's just empty rituals. It's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. But this doesn't in any way nullify God's promises These promises from God are still ripe for anyone to receive, Jew or Gentile. So the whole argument in chapters 9 through 11 is that God's word has not fallen. Let's say that together. One, two, three. God's word has not fallen. One more time. One, two, three. God's word has not fallen. Good. But how do you think these Jews at Rome could have misinterpreted the idea that we're justified through Christ alone? Simple. They would have wondered what so many of us do. If Jesus justifies us and we're not justified by obedience to the law, that's just too simple. Look at our heritage. Look at our legacy. That's just, it's so simple, it's difficult. And so it is with so many of us. It just seems too good to be true that we're justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. They were saved. All right, let me back up here. We know that reading Romans, we see that the Spirit through Paul says in a million different and amazing ways, no, the gospel fulfills God's promise to the Israelites because we can't obey the law. Even the greats like 
Abraham and Moses couldn't obey the law. Even they needed to be saved by faith. Their faith was looking forward to the finished work of Christ, the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. And now we, and, and these Roman Christians here, were saved by looking back at the finished work of Christ. Again, nothing's changed. Paul is emphasizing the truth of his claim that the word of God has not failed, and he does with gut-wrenching emotion. And to take Romans 9 and set up beachheads that we fired other Christians with ignores the whole heart of the passage. Listen to this. He says that he communicates these words not just with sorrow, but with great sorrow. He says he communicates them not with just anguish, but unceasing anguish. That is serious. It never ends. It's always on his heart. He can't get it off of his mind. He labors for it. He's been whipped for it. He's been beaten for it. He's been homeless for it. He's been hungry for it. He's been naked for it. He's been left for dead because of this anguish and sorrow. Because he knows that these, his Jewish brethren might think he doesn't love him because he's going to be telling him here that they're cursed. That, those who, that non-believing Jews will be cut off from Christ. And make no mistake, Paul knew this would be a very, very hard message for him. When Paul was temporarily blinded on the road to Damascus during his encounter with the risen Christ, I believe it's because the Holy Spirit knew that he needed a, a massive wake-up call to his spiritual blindness. Because like his Jewish countrymen, he tried to just, justify himself before God through obedience to the law. His spiritual eyes could only be opened through an encounter with the risen Lord. So that's exactly what we read happening in Acts chapter 9. And when I read of Paul's salvation in Acts 9, I'm always reminded of his prayer that he prayed for the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, where he prays, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. And I think Paul had that same prayer for their spiritual blindness to be cured, for their eyes to be opened for this church at Rome and for his Jewish brethren around the world. I think his prayer was, Jesus opened my eyes to hope in Christ and how I long for him to take the scales off your eyes that you might see and be saved. The truth that Paul's going to share in Romans 9 is indeed very difficult. And that is his Jewish brethren that rely on obedience, adherence to the law to be saved instead of justification through Christ alone will be cut off from Christ. Skipping forward to Romans 9.27, that we'll go through in more detail later on in uh, following weeks here. It says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. So the remnant that Isaiah is referring to and that uh, 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 Paul is echoing here are those Jews that uh, place their trust in the Messiah. They will be the remnant. And some, like uh, Nicodemus... Uh, a Jewish man in John chapter 3 that we see coming to know Christ would be part of that remnant. But all who do not, who do not call on Jesus, will be cut off from Christ. I mean, this, Paul knows this is going to be hard for him. The, the promises were made originally for them. How, how can it be so easy? How can Paul be saying that? There, he just got done saying nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, and now he's saying, but you're cursed. 
You'll be cut off from Christ. How are they to receive that? And Paul isn't telling them this flippantly. Paul had the same heart as D.L. Moody, preacher of old, who said, never preach on hell or judgment without eyes filled with tears. Paul is pleading with them because he loves them, and we would be wise to pray for the same heart. He said, if I could, and he can't, because Romans 8 says you cannot be separated from the love of Christ. He can't. But he says, if I could, I would be cut off and cursed for my own people. He is in great sorrow and unceasing anguish for their spiritual condition. We would be wise to pay heed to these first six verses when interpreting Romans 9 or we'll miss God's heart. It'll become an argument. We'll become like hard-hearted Pharisees lacking love for lost people. When first, we need the heart Uh, We need the heart that God has for people who don't know him, where we can say along with the Spirit of God and Paul that if only we could be cut off, if only we could be cursed for the salvation of those that God has put in our lives, we should first develop, before developing convictions on election, make it a priority to let the Holy Spirit break our hearts for the lost, to beg him to give us great sorrow and unceasing anguish for them. Revivals happen and people are reached through tears, through the Holy Spirit moving us to a great passion and desire to love lost people. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, so to say that we won't be a part of that is like a fish saying, I don't want any water. We are to swim in that. It's to be our passion. It's to be our bread. And it should break our hearts. Tears and heartache and longing and love and sacrifice for the lost. I believe this is the divine reason why Paul says these words first. The word of God has not failed. Jesus is the answer to the sin problem. And so many haven't found him. And they're separated from him. And Romans 8 says that doesn't have to be the case. The point of Romans 9 is that unbelieving Jews will be cut off from Christ and that the word of God has not failed because of that reality, because they have fallen away. But there's a heart, an emotional orientation we must have while reading and studying and interpreting Romans or we'll miss the point. Paul says that he's filled with great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Don't read words laced with emotion in Scripture and in some way sideline them or try to summarize them because emotion saturates the pages of Scripture. Yes, we need to learn all the principles for how to interpret the Word of God with our mind, but there's a move today to summarize the entire Bible in just simple sentences and then skip over all the emotion. Just because it's a sub-point doesn't mean that it can't save your soul. So when we read emotion, it means that God wants us to Feel something. He wants us to interpret the word with our heart when we read emotion. Paul in Ephesians 1, again, when he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He could have just said, I pray that you get saved. But there's something the Holy Spirit wants us to feel as we use our minds and our hearts. We read the word of God with our minds, yes. But if we fail to read it with our heart, we'll become Pharisees. And if we fail to read it with our mind, will become overly emotional and will likely fall away from the faith or cause other believers pain by our misinterpretation of Scripture. 
So what kind of emotion are we to have here? In this passage, it's very easy. Uh, Great sorrow and unceasing anguish. That is the heart that we're to have alongside of Christ for lost people. That's the heart that we come to the study with. Because whether you read Romans 9, as we'll see next week, through the lens that says God has predestined or chosen certain individuals to be saved and uh, through his irresistible grace and then also his irresistible judgment, that it's already been predetermined, whether that is your perspective or uh, you see this passage through another less static and more dynamic lens that says only those who willfully choose Christ will be saved and only those who choose to reject him will be lost. That is, God's initiation with us unto salvation can be resisted. Both are perspectives that I have seen well defended in Scripture. And if you think they're not well defended, both of them, you haven't studied them. You haven't looked at the other side, I assure you. I believe that Either way, either way, either perspective, there are people who are going to live all of eternity without life, without peace, without love, without joy, without the kingdom of God and King Jesus himself. And if we read this with any other heart, we do this scripture a huge injustice. Because when we get to heaven, I highly doubt the Lord will hold us accountable to what our perspective was on Romans 9, but he certainly will hold us accountable for what breaks his heart. The effect of sin on the world and on individual souls. I believe that this deep and unceasing anguish and great sorrow Paul had for his people was in fact part of his joy. I think that not, if we don't have sorrow and unceasing anguish for the lost, then we don't really have joy. I don't. If injustice, if spiritual and emotional brokenness, spiritual lostness, if that doesn't break our hearts, then I feel we don't have joy. I think sorrow and anguish are necessary to be truly joyful in Christ because Paul says to the church at Philippi in Philippians 4, run, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. But then he seems to contradict himself in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And I'm sitting there thinking this week, trying to figure it out. I'm like, I don't understand this. So after much prayer and frustration, this is what I have for you. So, so how does Paul have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his lost Jewish brethren and still obey the command to rejoice always? How does he rejoice always but also mourn with those who mourn? Because the heart of God is filled with, with both sorrow for sin and the effect that sin has had on us, but also has established and will continue to establish and build this kingdom of joy of which we all partake in if we know and love Jesus. We are citizens now, we said in past weeks in Romans, of a new kingdom with a new king. So joy is found only in the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is built through a deep conviction that the world is lost and without Christ, and that makes us sorrowful. We know to whom we belong, and he will make all things right, so we rejoice. And this position of joy allows us to join Christ in truly loving others, and love is a risky business that breaks our hearts. But without love for people, we have no joy. We're insulated and dying. And love requires sorrow. So there's a very appropriate sorrow in Christ-exalting joy. 
Joy is not, you know, this. It can be this. But joy is a heart that's filled with passion for that which Jesus is passionate about. And he came to seek and to save the lost. So there's joy in it. There's joy in sorrow over our lost world. You know, as I went through Romans 9, this week has been a very tough week. I mean, man, I labored over Romans 9, and I'm wanting to, I had a whole nother teaching lined up, and we'll get into some of it next week, but where I'm sharing both perspectives and all of that, and because I have a perspective, I've got to, and I know that and have studied that, but I've got to study the other side real well so that I can do it justice. I was just laboring. I was just like, Lord, there's something else that there's something I'm not getting it. This just feels too academic. There's something I'm not getting. I have studied Romans more than any other book in the Bible by far. And I got it. I looked at that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish. And I thought, I'm missing the emotional connection. That's what I'm missing. They'd be cut off and cursed for the sake of his Jewish brethren. There's a passion to this passage that can't be lost. Worship team, you can go ahead and come on up. That's my only point tonight. There's no need for different points. There's no need for PowerPoint because there is but one point. Pray for great sorrow and unceasing anguish for the lost. Pray for it. We must have it. Every revival throughout history has been done through broken hearts for lost people. Every missions explosion, we have this missions meeting coming up here in a few weeks and uh, tons of young people who are considering becoming full-time missionaries. That happens when hearts are broken for the lost. You don't give up family and, uh, or, or the ability to be around family consistently and, and creature comforts when your heart's not broken for the lost. When we don't give generously to God's kingdom, it's because our hearts aren't broken for a lost world. When we see injustice and don't want the gospel to change it and put our feet and hands to that action, then our hearts are not broken for the lost. If our hearts are not broken for the lost, said simply, our love for Jesus is weak. And the good news is if we feel convicted over that tonight, the worst thing we can do is feel condemnation over that and somehow try to love people more. I'm going to really, I'm going to white knuckle it. And here's my list. I used to do that when I was a young believer. Make a list of all the ways I'm going to love people. Did that so many times. You know how many times it worked? But if I made the list and then prayed over it, had other people prayed over it, acknowledged that it was, it was it's like Paul said, the love of Christ compels me. Chris Old doesn't compel me. The love of Christ compels me. And I let every time I have a hard heart or feel lazy or want to give myself to my own comfort and ease. But remember that it's the love of Christ that compels me. It's it's the grace to have love for people is a prayer away. Because it's his grace that saved us and it's his grace that will sustain us in our obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for this stirring challenge that your spirit has given to us through Paul. Lord, where you can hear and feel his broken heart as we read these first six verses of Romans 9. Lord, would you please break our heart for the lost? 
Lord, would you do it? Would you just give us a childlike longing for people to be saved? I see that in the faces and the words of many here at Awaken who I talk to and interact with, Lord, but I'll just confess I'm not there yet, and I need your grace. Lord, I've seen you move me in that way, in that uh, great sorrow and unceasing anguish for the lost in other periods of my life, but I'm not there now. I need your grace, Lord. We need your grace. Please change us. Please help us to walk out in obedience, to love our lost world, even as we're developing a heart for it. In Jesus' name, amen.